From the courtroom to the tabloids, welcome to All Rise. All Rise swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Your host, Dylan Howard. Spider-Man's evil Hollywood hustle. The billion-dollar swindle is exposed as All Rise tells the incredible real story of the most exclusive, high-stakes Hollywood poker ring ever. We have a world-exclusive interview. But first, sex, lies and triple murder inside the Chris Watts case and stunning, chilling new details revealed. It's our first story. Let's get at it. Breaking news. There is breaking news surrounding the Colorado killer dad, Chris Watts, He has been moved under the cover of darkness, leaving a prison in the state of Colorado late Monday evening, several sources confirm to all rise. Joining me now here to deliver the very latest on this case after his conviction for murder is Andy Tillett, News Director of Radar Online, and Nick Hatzifastar Theo. Nick, what can you tell us? So I got a call at about 1 a.m., Uh, This morning, that woke me up, and it was a source who told me that Chris Watts got picked up by federal marshals late Monday night and transferred to an unknown location. Why was he transferred? For security purposes. That's what the jail is saying, and that's what the source confirmed. Is there any indication that he was targeted behind bars that led to this sudden switch? I mean, the source noted that he is... He's the most hated father in America. So no matter where they put him, it's going to be a tough ride for him. And they don't think that the state prison in Colorado has the resources to protect him and other prisoners from those that might want to target him. So he's definitely in police custody behind bars. We don't know if it's a prison or somewhere else at a secret location. As of right now, he's still on the road with marshals. And we don't know where he's heading Uh, They're not releasing any information. The prison said that they informed Shannon Watts' family that they are moving him, but they won't even tell the victim's family what state he's going to until he securely arrives for the safety of those transporting him. Now, ultimately, Chris Watts pled guilty to the brutal and heinous murders of his wife, Shannon Watts, and his two daughters, Bella, four, and Celeste, three. But this case has taken a dramatic turn with the sudden release of the police files, the investigative files. Now, I want to play to you some of the audio that the police have released about him being questioned about marital problems in his relationship with his wife, which potentially was his motive for murder. Let's take a listen. We just had that disconnect. Like, once I saw her again, it was just like, no, it wasn't there anymore. Okay. And uh, it's going to be a hard question to to answer, but um, is she seeing anyone else that you're aware of? I mean, I'm not going to put it. I'm not going to say no because I mean it's totally possible. Okay. Are you seeing anyone else that she isn't aware of? No, I've not done that. Okay. Nick, what does that reveal? So. During the interview with police, which was on a phone, uh, the police called him on the phone and they had their body cam on. Chris said that he had fell out of love with his wife, that they were having issues and it stemmed going back to a vacation that they had. 
Um, he also noted that his wife could possibly have been cheating on him, but vowed that he would not be, but vowed that he would never cheat on her. So we learned that obviously he had not just one mistress, two mistresses. And I mean, since the beginning, the stories have been changing. And that's when we go to you, Andy Tillett. Andy, listeners of this podcast will know that you broke the story about Chris Watts having a mistress. What can you tell me about what the police files uncovered about these extramarital affairs? The police files reveal two separate mistresses. Two? Uh, Yes, indeed. The first one was Nicole Kessinger, who had been carrying on an affair with Chris for a few weeks and had came forward to them to say that she had had an affair with him when she saw that he had killed his family on the news. So when the police were questioning Chris about whether he had had an extramarital affair and he said no, they already knew that he had actually been seeing somebody else because she had volunteered that information to them. Now, is it true that he FaceTimed his mistress from the murder scene? That is entirely correct. What can you tell me about that? So after Chris had driven his truck with the bodies of his wife and his two children in it out to an oil field and dumped them, he then went home and uh, he FaceTimed his mistress from the bedroom where he'd actually killed his wife. Although that didn't happen until a little bit later because when he first arrived home, that's when his entire uh, plot fell apart because he was confronted by his neighbours and the police, all of whom were asking where Shannon was. And he didn't really have much of an answer to that, which is one of the things that we've been able to see and been able to uncover through the uh, hours of video footage which have been released by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. One of the more frightening pieces of video was revealed on Radar Online. It shows Chris Watts restless after we now know that he murdered his pregnant wife and their daughters. This video footage is eerie. It was filmed outside his Colorado home by a next-door neighbour's outdoor surveillance camera. It shows him backing up his truck into his driveway directly in front of his garage. Now, when you consider that and then you listen to this audio, it paints a horrible portrait of America's most twisted dad. Because if there is any sort of action out there, his camera, so I would have got it. Like right. we, had, I, we had issues the other, other week when people were, coming, were stealing stuff out of like garages and stuff like that. And I have parked my truck I right here. I have parked right here. Yeah. Someone, see I can see happened. where someone tried to jimmy with a flathead screwdriver over there, and it was just like. But if any action would have happened, any cars or anything left yeah. your house, I would have been like right in that area. It should have picked. I mean, like, oh, it'll pick up anything coming down the street this way. You know where that trigger is? Oh yeah. Okay. Watch, I'll show you. There's nothing on here. We've already looked. Can pick up cars coming this way. I get anything coming this way and making this turn. So. And usually at night I pick up the car pulling a year trip. So unless they pulled right here, yeah. but I would have caught her walking out. She's pregnant as well. How far along? 14, 15 weeks. Nick, what did we hear there? So the, the crazy part about that video that they've released was that that surveillance video was infamous. It showed him loading up the gas tank into the truck. It showed him pulling out. For the first time we find in this massive file that he actually watched that surveillance with the police at his neighbor's house and he didn't know that his neighbor was going to play that surveillance. So he's in the house, his neighbor turns on the surveillance and it 
his entire demeanor changes. He starts putting his hands behind his head, explaining himself. He explains himself three times. I had to bring my computers in. I had to bring my water jug in. He starts sweating, and he's visibly restless. He did not expect to see himself on his neighbor's surveillance camera. And until now, we didn't know that he saw that footage with the police at his neighbor's house, which is an insane revelation when you think about it because that footage led police to his arrest, and he watched it with them. So his facial expression was as if he knew that this was it, that this was the end. And 12 hours later, he was behind bars. Any indication that he thought at any point that he was going to get away with this? I mean, it sounds like clumsy killing at the best. <laughs> I don't mean to make light of the situation, but this, this is like a dummy's guide on how not to murder someone. That's, uh, that, that's entirely true, Dylan. The, the, the thing that's emerged from the files and the videos is that despite the fact this was premeditated, he handed a letter to his parents only a couple of weeks before saying, if anything happens to me, please investigate my wife. But how clumsy this entire operation was. Like By the time he had dumped the bodies and gone about his day's work and then come home, he'd already been caught. <laughs> The uh, mistress had phoned the police. The next-door neighbours had phoned the police. They'd started investigating. He hadn't got his alibis straight. He hadn't hidden any of her, his wife's things from in the house. He hadn't moved her car anywhere. He hadn't done any of the basic things that you would need to do in order to try and get away with this murder. And that's probably one of the reasons he cooperated with the police so quickly, uh, one of the reasons he accepted a polygraph test and then came up with this really ridiculous... Uh, hair-brained idea that his wife had strangled yeah. the children and that's why he killed her. Andy Tillett and Nick, I'm not even going to try and pronounce your last name. We're just going to refer to you as Nick H moving forward. How does that sound? That's perfect. Nick H and Andy Tillett, thank you very much for joining me. Up next, a world-exclusive interview that blows the lid off the Tinseltown movie Molly's Game and exposes a billion-dollar Hollywood heist. That interview is next. Harlan Eustis was excited about the surprise 40th birthday party he was throwing for his wife in 24 hours. We rented out the whole courtyard at the Buffalo Club. It'll be about 100 people. Kumamoto oysters, no crabs, lobsters. He wasn't ticking off menu items to show off. He was genuinely excited about the party he was giving his wife. She doesn't know anything about it. She thinks we're having dinner with his brother and his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I liked Harlan, but nobody else liked him except Player X. He played tight. Didn't give a lot of action. And always got his money in good, which means he was running the odds. 5,000 to call. No. In other words, he was playing poker and the others were gambling. That was a clip from Molly's Game, the 2017 Academy Award nominated blockbuster film about the underworld and underground Hollywood poker scene. But for the first time, we're hearing the incredible real story of what was the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker ring. A whistleblower has stepped forward with a shocking claim that Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire, is a real-life villain. Joining me on the line is whistleblower Houston Curtis, who was a member of this underground poker ring. Houston, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Now, in the pages of the National Enquirer, we read from a manuscript of your soon-to-be-published memoir. 
which details the ultimate Hollywood hustle and how members of this game were swindled in what essentially was a con job. This is in stark contradiction to the movie version of the real-life high-stakes Hollywood game. What is your story? Well, the, the truth is this game started, you know, long before Molly was ever in the picture. Uh, Toby and I met at the Commerce. We ended up playing in other private games uh, together. And eventually the game was taking place in his kitchen before it moved to the Viper Room, which is, you know, in the movie they call it uh, the Cobra Lounge, but it is actually the Viper Room. Um and the whole game was set up as a hustle from the beginning. I mean, we had a, back then, uh, a lot of guys didn't know how to play poker, but they were coming out of the woodworks to play because it had exploded on television. So the first thing we did is we set up a, uh, a buy-in that was really low for these guys. It was five, it was, in the beginning, it was just $5,000. But the blinds were 100, 200, uh, meaning if anybody out there who's listening plays poker, they know you can't sit in a game like that without at least 50 grand in front of you. So what we were able to do is get these guys to blow through their stacks in like the first two orbits. None of them wanted to get up and leave because they didn't want to be embarrassed because they were playing with all these celebrities. So they just kept going into their pocket. And uh, that's kind of how the the whole hustle began. So effectively you would lure these wealthy Hollywood types to the game under the pretense that they get to play with Hollywood A-listers and then be beaten by people like you and Toby Maguire who are very good at poker. So you would effectively swindle them. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't use the word swindle, but yeah, I guess that is exactly what, <laughs> what we did. For instance, we knew Leo was going to be a huge draw. Um, That's Leonardo but, DiCaprio. You know, yes. Uh, and him and Toby have been very good friends, you know, most of their life. Um, but Leo's not going to, you know, get in there and play with his own money. So Toby literally came to me when the, when the game, when we were first starting the game, uh, and said, let's stake Leo. And, you know, I write about this in the book because at first I thought it was ridiculous that we'd be staking, you know, somebody who's worth so much money. But it was worth it to us because, uh, you know, Leo was just such a big draw. Uh, and plus he played super tight. He only played like aces or kings, so we didn't have to worry too much about even losing money. But it, it was like an investment. You know, you're investing in this celebrity to draw in all these huge fish. What about Matt Damon and Ben Affleck? What was their role in the game? All right. Well, Affleck, um, you know, the first time I ever played with Affleck was out of the commerce uh, when he was just getting started. And then I played with him in other uh, Beverly Hills games. uh, And then eventually we brought him into our game. Affleck played a lot. And he was good for the game. He was a decent player. Uh, he was hilarious, a lot of fun to play with. Uh, but Matt, you know, Matt, Matt came to the game. I, the, the one time that Matt came to the game to really play in, in any kind of big way, uh, he lost like 50 grand and uh, he lost it to me and, and Affleck had to 
write the check because Matt didn't have any money on him. Wow. But, uh, but he was a super nice guy. <laughs> so, super nice guy. According to Molly Bloom, who was played by Jessica Chastain in the Aaron Sorkin box office hit, she was the quote-unquote poker princess. What was her role? How did you get involved with her? All right. Well, what happened was this game was going, was getting bigger and bigger at Toby's house. We were literally playing in his kitchen. And some of the people who were coming, you know, they were wanting to light up cigars or, or, or pizza. And, you know, Toby's a vegan. He's a little bit eccentric. And one night after we were done playing, he, he were talking about the game, which we always kind of did a little post game wrap up. And he, uh, he said, man, I got to find a way to get out of my house. <laughs> so, so we, we kicked around the idea of uh, calling our friend Darren, who owned the Viper Room. And Darren was super stoked to do it. And he said, uh, uh, he said, look, I'll even, and this is Darren's words, not, not mine. He said, I'll even have this hot little piece of ass ready to, uh, to serve drinks when you guys get here. Well, we didn't know who that was going to be, but that was Dylan's assistant who ended up being Molly Bloom. Darren, not Dylan's assistant. Just let's clarify, that's Darren, Uh, not Dylan's assistant. (laughs) And I never said that she's a hot piece of ass. You sure? <laughs> no, it wasn't you. It was it was Darren Feinstein, uh, whose family owns uh, I think the the biggest strip club in Vegas. By the way, uh, I don't know if you knew that or not. But um, so when we got there, you know, Molly was a fish out of water. Uh, but it was obvious from the beginning that this was going to be a perfect cover. You know, let her organize the game. Uh, but the game would, you know, actually still be controlled through us, and uh, and that way we didn't have to sweat any of the, uh, you know, pain in the ass stuff of people showing up at Toby's house or worried about people getting mugged on the way out of his house with a bunch of cash or something like that. So one excerpt of your manuscript was fascinating to me, and this book is titled The Billion Dollar Hollywood Hustle, a real-life story of monumental excess Greed, the A-list kingpin, and the shakedown that took down Tinseltown. I wanted to read from this excerpt. Right out of the gate, the entire game was designed to empty the pockets of the uninitiated, the celeb-loving rich Los Angeles suckers. Millionaire trust fund types and heirs to offshore fortunes, guys who'd made a killing on Wall Street or in tech startups or on the internet or by lucking out on the back of someone else's talent. In short, men with more money than they knew what to do. Men who weren't necessarily very good at poker, but who wouldn't mind writing a six-figure check every now and then for the thrill of getting to sit next to some genuine Hollywood big shot. Now, for people who don't know this story, the whole game, or scam, came crashing down when one gambler's losing hand triggered a monster lawsuit. The FBI caught wind of the game while looking into the finances of Beverly Hills hedge fund manager Bradley Ruderman. Ruderman, recently released from jail, bilked investors out of $25 million, which he dipped in to settle debts run up at the poker table, this game, between 2006 
to 2009. Is Bradley Ruderman Houston the epitome of what you guys did? Yeah. Uh, out, of yeah. All the, out, of, out of all the years I've been playing poker, uh, I've never met uh, a bigger fish than Ruderman. You know, when he when he first came into the game, you know, and the movie's got it all wrong about him, you know, Molly never vetted him. He came in through me and Toby. And uh, I think the first time I played with him was at Rick Solomon's house in Malibu. And they were calling him Malibu Brad back then. Uh, later, behind his back, we called him Bad Brad because he was literally the worst poker player I'd ever seen in my life. Um, I, I'd never seen anything like it. He called a like a $150,000 all-in bet once uh, against Rick Solomon, who was bluffing him. And Rick's like, hey, you got me. And he turned over Jack High. Rick had nothing. And then Ruderman turned over Jack High. He had called him with nothing. Not because he was smart, but because he didn't know what he was doing. He actually thought he had a hand. And at that moment, we knew we had a, a live one. Uh, and he dumped six feet time he played. I've been following this story. In fact, I broke this story in 2011 when the court documents came out that showed that Ruderman had bilked his investors. I spoke to a source who was involved in the game who actually told me that when players started winning big, they'd be deliberately blackballed. One person said to me that they were on a winning streak for a few months, won a large sum of money, and then all of a sudden he was asked to leave the game. Is that true? Well, I I don't know who you're speaking of, you know, in particular, but uh, the game was designed to be soft, you know, and there were there were a, a very few regulars, and we didn't want to. Uh, for instance, you know, we let Phil Ivey play in the game one time. Phil's one of the greatest cash game players in the world, uh, and we did it just for novelty's sake, but. We weren't going to let guys like that in the game because this is a game where there's millions of dollars on the table and it's real money. So we didn't want uh, uh, some rounder coming in and uh, trying to do what we were doing. You know, so yeah, we would weed them out and we would decide who got to play and who didn't get to play. And you know, one time a guy from New York came in under false pretenses and said he was the cousin of another player that uh, was in the game. And I believe this is a guy who was. I think paying Molly to get into the game. Uh, and in about two orbits uh, of play, we, I was able to tell he was a pro. And uh, we we put out the message uh, to, to him, don't tell all your buddies. He was a rounder from New York. We said, tell all your buddies this is what happens when you come to our game and lie about who you are. We kept his $40,000 buy-in. And uh, it was all in cash and booted his ass out the door. (laughs) One of the most (laughs) staggering revelations in the story published in this week's National Enquirer is that you allegedly led a secret double life, that not only were you a poker player at the game, you were and are a highly skilled card mechanic. What does that mean? Well, uh... The first time I picked up a deck of cards, I was probably seven or eight years old. And I learned uh, how to play poker and how to do my first magic trick on the same day. My my dad taught me. 
uh, and I became fascinated with uh, both the poker and the, uh, you know, kind of the world of card manipulation. And I've been doing this for years in, in you know, in secret. Uh, and I played many, many games, you know, from the early 90s all the way up until, you know, Molly's game started. I beat a lot of games uh, around town, some of them dangerous, uh, as a card mechanic. And a card mechanic, what a card mechanic does is just like a car mechanic fixes a car, a card mechanic fixes a card game. And if I'm dealing, I can deal anybody, any hand I want at any time. So did you fix the Hollywood game? All right. Uh, I knew this was going to be a question. So the Hollywood game had to appear as straightforward as possible. You know, if you get one smell of shenanigans going on in a game like this, it could it could destroy the whole game. So in order to do that, we brought in a shuffle master, which is, you know, an electronic shuffling machine and a professional full-time uh, center dealer, a guy who sits in the center of the table and, and deals to everyone. And again, this is back in the old days when a bunch of dudes got together to play poker and they would pass the deal, right? Well, we had fish coming into the game who'd never even held a deck of cards. So, so it was, you know, it was, more to our advantage to let someone else deal so we'd get more hands off per hour. So in that sense, we were beating the game straight up uh, because I, we could basically look at these guys and read, you know, what they were holding uh, and play them blind. But there were plenty of, of instances where, you know, card mechanics were able to come into play. Uh, for instance, if we did a high card or what's called a showdown, um, you know, I, I've done high cards for fit cut and where you try and cut whoever cuts the highest card. It's just a straight up gamble. And I would never lose something like that. You know, I, I've cut $50,000 high cards, uh, using tricks that I literally have known since elementary school. Is there any illegality to this? <laughs> well, we weren't, as far as the poker game goes... Is this where you cite the Fifth Amendment? <laughs> yeah, I please the Fifth. The way I look at it, um, I've, never, I've never liked the, uh, the term card cheat. I, I've always preferred the term advantage player. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. And you know, back in the early 1900s in the old West time, the professionals were all mechanics. You know, anyone who was considered a real professional knew uh, how to handle a deck of cards to a certain degree. And, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, that got, watered down over the years and uh, as you know poker became televised and dealers started getting hired to deal all the games where the players weren't dealing anymore uh, a lot of the um, mechanics kind of really slipped into uh, the shadows uh, which has actually been great for me uh, and for a lot of guys who do what I do you know because now these players don't even you know, have any idea that they could be taken 
by an advantaged player when they're sitting down at the table. They wouldn't even know what to look for. Now, a source close to Toby Maguire tells me that he was unaware that you were a card mechanic, that he never received what's called a rake in the game or was paid to host any games. And I would point out, it is not illegal to play underground poker in California unless you do rake a game. Now, Molly Bloom pleaded guilty to her role in a separate game in New York City that involved mobsters and others. She was later sentenced to a year of probation, fined $200,000 and ordered to do 200 hours of community service. What are your thoughts about Molly Bloom today? Well, I tell you, Dylan, when when the book was first coming out, Molly was calling me all the time, and she was calling me to, to ask her to remind her of certain hands that we played in the game and, uh, you know, things that she was using for the book that I eventually even saw in the movie. And she was giving me this uh, this tale of, you know, how Toby was never really my friend and he was just uh, using me to make money because I made so much money in the game and, you know, eventually he had like a piece of me near the end. And, and uh, I, uh, I I just let her, let her talk. Um, but she, she really disappointed me. When this book came out, I mean, there are so many things that aren't true. Um, and so many things that are, and, and the real story is so much more fascinating than than the story she she told. I mean, she told a story that makes herself look like a little princess, and I don't think it's really an interesting story. But the real story of the hustle that went on in this game, you know, is the story that I'm telling. For one, I can't wait for this book to hit shelves. You obviously, in my eyes in the Aaron Sorkin movie with a character, Harlan Eustace, who was played by yeah. Bill Camp. Get that? Harlan Eustace, Houston Curtis. Now, in the movie, <laughs> you were portrayed as someone who had a finite amount of income. You played well, but one devastating hand caused you, Harlan, to unravel and eventually accrue over $1 million of debt. Is that the case? Uh. I, I mean, I would have to say that compared to the other guys in the game, that could be fairly accurate. But uh, Molly, in her book and both in the movie, makes it sound like they even say in the movie, Player X, who's, you know, supposed to be Toby. So he said, yeah, I've been staking him for two years. Well, that's that's that was never accurate. You know, I made my first million dollars when I was 30 years old creating a video series called The Best of Backyard Wrestling. Kids beating the shit out of each other in the backyards. The athlete used to always give me shit about it at the game. Because uh, we did, I did ghetto brawls and brawling broads and a bunch of crazy reality videos. Uh, plus a lot of television shows. So I was playing with my own money. Um, but it did, things did really come down to uh, big hands. Uh, and in the movie, they make it seem like I lost a big pot to Brad Ritterman because I didn't know, or Harlan Hustis lost a big pot to Ritterman because he didn't know how bad he was. That was just Aaron Sorkin's, you know, <laughs> story. I, you know, I never lost a hand. <laughs> As it plays out in the movie, Toby agrees to cover the losses with an exceptionally unfair deal. He'll get 
50% of Eustace's wins until the debt is paid off and none of his losses. Is that true? Yeah, not only that, uh, Toby and I scratched a deal. What happened was Toby and I were both stuck real bad one night, which was very rare. I mean, we would go 10, 15 sessions without ever having a loss, which is kind of unheard of in, in the poker world. Um, so we were both stuck uh, at one point about 750K each. And Toby ended up getting out of it through some miracle hand. Um, and as soon as he got even, he was out the door. And so I'm sitting there, you know, stuck. Uh, I'm into the game now for, I got a million dollars riding on this game. And it ends up being just me and Rick Solomon heads up at the end of the night. Now, Rick is, uh, uh you know, know everyone, for... everyone who listens to this <laughs> podcast knows Rick Solomon as the sex type partner. <laughs> of Paris Hilton, A Night in Paris, which I recommend, highly recommend for Christmas viewing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Rick and I had done a few things together um, leading up to that. We did this, we were going to do this whole uh, prison fight thing. We sent over a crew to Thailand to do like extreme Thai prison fights. And um, he, he was, he was a good guy. Uh, they, his nickname was scum for obvious reasons, but everyone kind of loved the guy. Um, and you know, he had a lot of big friends like Toby and Leo who, uh, all thought highly of him, even though he was kind of a, you know, a, a degenerate philandering, <laughs> you know, but he would call the, he would call himself that. Um, but it was me and Rick heads up and, I mean, he laid out more cocaine than I had ever seen in my life and just fired away. And uh, he hit a miracle gut shot on me uh, where I I ended up losing a full million bucks. And I got to tell you, it was a a bad, bad day. And one thing that was true in the movie, it was – my wife's birthday at the time. Uh, she was actually at the Beverly Hills hotel that morning. The game went all the way into the next day, having lunch with Toby's, uh, wife, Jen and uh, Jen Meyer. And I was supposed to take her out for a big dinner that night. And I came home a million dollar loser, <laughs> just out, out of my mind, you know, and your wife uh, so I went thrilled, to Toby I and we scratched out this deal on a napkin and I'm trying to find this napkin because it'd be a kind of a cool keepsake. Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the terms were this, um, I give him 50% of my wins until he's paid back. And then, and this was the, the ball buster. He wanted 50% of my wins from a year after that. Now, so what this meant was, if I, say I win $100,000 uh, uh, one night, Toby gets 50000 I win $100,000 the next night, Toby gets 50000 Then I lose $100,000 the third night. Well, Toby doesn't sweat anything, but I have to now pay out the my $100,000 profit over the previous two games, you know, just to stay afloat. So ultimately, this deal was going to be a loser for me. But, you know, I'm no idiot. I knew that going in, and I know how Toby is. He loves to make great deals for himself. Uh, 
So I, I agree. And who else? There's nobody else in the world that, I mean, sure, there are guys in Vegas who would have come out with tons of juice and muscle and, and you know, loan me any amount of money. But to have a friend cover you on a, on a debt that big, um, you know, it should say what type of what type of guy he, he he is. I mean, he knew he had the best of it in the deal, but this was a lot of money. And uh, and I wanted the one thing they don't say is uh, in the film or the book is I won the million back in like two or three weeks. Yeah, two or three weeks he had it back. <laughs> Houston, listening to you, listening to the real story behind Molly's game a game where millions were won and lost every week and helped forge the story for the theatrical hit. I can't help but come to the conclusion that this is the biggest heist in Hollywood history. Yeah, well, you got to remember, it's millions on the table every week, often twice a week, for over five years. So... And the, the the players from the, the billionaires, the wealthiest people in the you know some of the wealthiest people in the world, to the biggest celebrities, biggest sports stars. I mean, our lineup was unbelievable. Every pro in Vegas would hit me up trying to get into this game. You know, uh, I mean, all of them, from Phil Ivey to Phil Helmuth to uh, Annie Duke to. Uh, you name it, they wanted to play in this game. And and I knew all these guys from, you know, all of my time spent in card rooms and plus producing shows like the Ultimate Blackjack Tour, which featured a lot of professional poker players. Um, it was the best game in the world for, for about five years. There was no game better. All right, Houston Curtis, poker pro turned whistleblower, your forthcoming book, The Billion Dollar Hollywood Hustle, a true tale of monumental excess, greed, the A-list kingpin, and the shakedown that took down Tinseltown out soon. A remarkable interview. Houston, thank you very much for your time. Dylan, thank you so much, and I think people are really going to be surprised and shocked when they see what's inside this book. I look forward to it coming out and hope everybody checks it out. Wow. When you think about that, that really is one of the biggest scams to ever hit Tinseltown. And that was the first interview with the whistleblower, Houston Curtis. Okay, thanks very much for your company. Don't forget that you can subscribe to All Rise on iTunes and all good podcast platforms. This has been All Rise, Episode 5, Season 2. The only podcast, as Houston was able to do, the only podcast with the guts to tell it like it is.